The following is brought to you by Thrive, the end-to-end client experience platform that helps you get the job, manage the job, and get credit. Welcome to Winning on Main Street. My name is Gordon Henry. Thanks for joining us. Today, we have a special edition of Winning on Main Street featuring Scott Galloway, best-selling author of The Algebra of Happiness, as well as the bestseller, The Four, and professor of marketing at the NYU Stern School of Business in New York City. Scott spoke at Thrive's Connect 19 conference in Dallas recently, and this is his presentation to that audience in its entirety. In addition to his teaching and author credentials, Scott is a highly successful serial entrepreneur, and we think you'll find his presentation compelling. Now, here's Scott Galloway. My name's Scott Galloway. I teach at NYU, and I appreciate your time. Uh, I have about 40 minutes and about 120 slides, so let's light this candle. Uh, I teach at NYU, and most of my kids, when I say kids, I mean students, the average age is 27. They come to school thinking that they're there to garner the skills to try and get more economic security or the currency uh, to build a better life for themselves. And I find that by the end of business school, it's an interesting time in life, in your late 20s, you're starting to think about what you want to do with your life, thinking about family creation, household creation. And by the end of uh, their two-year program, they realize that they're not there to try and create economic security. They're there to try and figure out what's required so they can build an arc of satisfaction through their life. We live in a capitalist society. It's important we're successful. It's important that we fix our own mass first. But once we get to a certain level of economic security, uh, and I'll go through this, um, that is not the difference between being successful and happy. And I spent a lot of time thinking about this, uh, which is sort of unusual as a business uh, school professor. And if you knew me, you would not immediately think of happiness when you thought of me. And uh, I decided to focus on um, the topic of happiness for my next book. And writing books is, um, writing books is sort of an unusual uh, journey. So the way I write books is I take my most popular session and I turn it into a video, and if the video does well, I turn it into a book. So my second most popular session is called The Four. I talk about Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google and their dominance. I think these four firms are monopolies. I think they are dominating the economy. I think they are stifling innovation and economic growth. And after kind of falling in love with them, my book became a cautionary tale, and now I'm spending a lot of time in Washington talking about antitrust. I think uh, we like to think we're in an era of innovation, There are half as many new businesses being started today as there were in the Carter administration. Uh, So we like to think we're in an era of innovation. We're in an era of non-innovation. 15 years ago, 15% of the companies uh, in America were less than one year old, now it's 7%. So you are becoming a dying breed, and that is people who decide to try and create the engine of what has been responsible for two-thirds of the economic growth of the United States, and that's small business. Because the fastest growing parts of our economy, search, social, computer hardware, Uh, are dominated by a monopoly or a duopoly. So I wrote the book, did well, and then I thought, okay, I'm on to something. My publisher called and said, we need you to write another book. And I said, well, what about? He said, it doesn't matter. Just get a second one out as quickly as possible. (laughs) And I said, well, I have written a book. I'm almost done. And she said, great. What's it called? And I was like, it's the algebra of happiness. And she looked at me and she said, no, 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 (laughs) no. Write a book about Apple, say Sheryl Sandberg's a liar again, anything about tech, it doesn't matter. Just write another book about tech and we can just foist it on anyone at Barnes and Noble. And I said, no, I'm writing a book on happiness. So I go through this process and uh, 
uh, I did a video, and the video got two million views, which is the most videos I've ever received, where I tried to distill down, and this is my, what I'm doing here is an abridged version of my last class. And I try and distill down all the research and observations I've made around what are the algorithms for a life well lived. And tried to distill it down to math and create a series. There, are, there, is no, there is no singular algorithm for happiness, but there are best practices. And there's a lot of research on the topic of happiness. I spend a lot of time thinking about it. It's a personal journey for me that started four years ago on a Sunday night. Every Sunday night I speak to my sister. And she said to me, simply put, she said, Scott, why are you so pissed off all the time? She said, look at your life. You have less justification to be angry than anyone I know. She's like, you have a fantastic life, and you are angry all the time. And it really hit me, because uh, it's true. My blessings are this. My mood is this. And I said, well, what's the point? What's the point if you work for and are fortunate enough to have this, but the way you recognize it is with this? And so I set about trying to think about, okay, I'm really gonna, I'm an analytical person. As an academic, I do a lot of research, I'm comfortable with data. And I thought, I'm really gonna try and unwrap and uncover the keys to um, not only building an arc of success, but building an arc of happiness. So some of the fine print. I like to be introduced to Scott Galloway, not Professor Galloway. I like to think I'm, loosely speaking, an expert on the intersection between technology and business. I am not an expert on behavioral psychology or depression, or anxiety, or happiness. I'm just someone trying to figure it out like the rest of us, and I've done a lot of work around it, and my, my uh, platform, NYU, lets me teach one session on it. Uh, but I am not um, credentialed in this field. Uh, I've done a decent amount of research on it, as we discussed, uh, so let's bust into it. Across uh, almost every study on happiness, there is an arc of happiness that's correlated with your age. And this is beautiful research. You never see independent studies uh, cross-reference this elegantly, where they all kind of come back the same way. So across ethnic groups, across ages, across cultures, there is an arc of happiness. And that is from kind of zero to 25, childhood, college, beer, exploration of who you are, friendships, spilling into adulthood, hand solo, it's just magic. Right? We're generally pretty happy until the age of 25. From 25 to 45, you discover that you're not going to have a fragrance named after you and you're not going to be senator. Uh, you have kids, and everyone told you that kids are wonderful, but all the research shows people without kids are happier than people with kids. Uh, they are, you know, you, you, you're hopelessly in love with these things, but they're, let's be honest, they're awful. Right? And they're stressful. And you've likely hit some economic most people at some point in their life, unless they're smart enough to inherit old money, hit a certain level of economic duress. In addition, this is usually the period in your life where someone you love gets sick and dies. And life, life really hits you square in the forehead. And it's stressful. These are the most stressful, least happy years of your life, 25 to 45. And then something wonderful happens in your late 40s, maybe earlier if you're soulful, and that is you start getting happier typically because you start finding joy in things you didn't find joy in before. Remember how ridiculous you thought your mom was when she'd sit down at a restaurant, she'd be like, look how beautiful these flowers are. <laughs> look, oh my God, isn't, look at the way they're presenting the fish. Isn't it amazing? And you're thinking like, what is up with mom, <laughs> right? And then all of a sudden you start finding joy in these things. You start finding joy in nature. You start finding joy in relationships, in friendships in art, in whatever it might be, competitive sport, but you start all of a sudden recognizing that our time here is finite, and we start gaining an appreciation for our blessings. Hopefully we have some success. Hopefully we have deep and meaningful relationships. 
and we start to appreciate them. And when you think about it, the cohort that should be the least happy, seniors, because it sucks to have your health decline, and it does as you get older, they're the happiest. Seniors are the happiest cohort across almost every ethnic and cultural group. So what I tell my kids is if you wake up at 25, 35, 45, and you think, God, this just isn't what I'd hoped for. I am really stressed. I'm, I'm, I, I would even say I'm unhappy. What I would tell them is, look, that's, part, that's a natural part of the journey and to keep on keeping on. Now, I want to be clear. Actual clinical depression is something entirely different and requires outside intervention. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the journey for most of us involves a lot of stress, anxiety, and a certain level of unhappiness. That's part of the journey across almost every ethnic, every economic, and every cultural group. So this is Bart Simpson saying, this is the worst day of my life. And his father comforts him and says, the worst day of your life so far. <laughs> so there is, there is an arc to happiness. So this is my first equation. Second equation, sweating versus watching. I think the ratio of time you spend sweating to watching other people sweat is a forward-looking indicator of your success. Uh, simply put, I think spectator sports are the new cancer. And you can imagine how much Fox enjoys it when I come on and say that. But show me someone who spends two hours every night watching ESPN, spends all day Sunday watching football, and doesn't work out, and I'll show you a future of failed relationships and anger. Show me someone who does soul cycle, sweats every day, uh, uses sports as a means to establish intimacy with other groups of people, and I'll show you someone who's good at life. So the equation I give my students and my kids is you are not allowed to watch other people sweat for any longer than you sweat yourself. There is a lot of research around exercise probably being the strongest non-pharmaceutical intervention for depression and happiness. I struggle with anger and depression, and the first thing I do when I realize I'm, I'm what I call just getting down is I sweat right away. Whatever, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I find sweating kind of resets what is ever going on in here. But the correlation between exercise and success is dramatic. The thing that more Fortune 500 CEOs have in common uh, is not that they went to college, it's not that they went to Ivy League schools, it's not even that they're white men, which used to be the thing that was most uh, common about them. But the most co thing most co common about them now is about 470 of the 500 exercise five times a week. Success is directly correlated to the amount of time you sweat. By the way, if you're watching a lot of advertising, it means you're not doing very well. That's another indicator of how your life's going. If you're watching a lot of spectator sports or sports or TV that involves advertising, it means your life hasn't worked out that well. Advertising has become a tax that the poor and the technologically illiterate have to pay, and spectator sports embody that. This is do as I say, not as I do. This is a highly emotionally manipulative picture meant to make you like me more. <laughs> this is me and my son at World Cup. So I think, I think sports are wonderful. I just think they should never be consumed. I think sports are like alcohol. I think they're wonderful. I just think they should never be consumed alone. <laughs> the myth of balance. Uh, we talk a lot about balance. You're going to hear a lot about balance, a lot of talks, a lot of discussion around how to balance. And what I tell my kids is from the age of 25 to 45, if you want to be in the top 10% economically, and I have a, a group that's self-selected that they all expect to be not only in the top 10% economically, but they expect to be in the top 1%. A large portion of my students coming out of NYU, the average salary coming out of NYU Business School is $118,000. That's the average. 
And so you can imagine if they start at the age of 29 and 117 grand, they expect to be making 500, 600, seven figures by the time they're 37 or 38. So all these kids expect to be in the 99th, if not the 99.9. They're blessed. I mean, incredibly blessed, coming into a great economy with a great skill set, right pedigree, et cetera. <laughs> but they all talk about work-life balance. And I think it's a myth. I think if you expect to be in the top 1%, maybe even the top 10%, you have to have an open and honest conversation with yourself and just assume you're not going to have any balance. And I find that there is no such thing as having it all. There's just a series of trade-offs. And you have to have an honest conversation about the trade-offs you're willing to make to achieve a certain level of economic success. I also want to acknowledge that is not the right path for, of happiness for everyone. Some people decide they're not going to howl in the money storm. And it's more important for them to spend more time with family and friends and on themselves through those important years. And they're going to sacrifice some economic upside. But just because you know somebody, and we all know this person, who's smart, who's handsome, who has good relationships, who's great at what they do, money just seems to flow to them. Uh, they work out every day, donate time at the ASPCA, and has a food blog. Assume you are not that person. <laughs> Jay-Z became a billionaire pursuing his passion. You are not Jay-Z. So assume that if you really want to uh, strive, if you really want to be successful economically, um, you're going to have to work most of your 20s and 30s. I, I had almost no balance in my 20s and 30s. It cost me my hair, it cost me my marriage, it came at a real cost. Uh, but I have a lot of balance now because I pretty much did nothing but work. I know very few people who are very successful who didn't devote the majority of two decades plus to their profession. And it's not aspirational, it's not fun to talk about, it comes at a cost, and I find it's true across the board. So this is what we do. We spend most of our life working in our 20s and 30s and 40s. This is what Instagram tells us we should be doing. These are successful people, the most successful people in the world according to Instagram, this is what they do. I don't even know what this woman is doing. Do you know what she's doing? <laughs> this is what my Instagram feed would look like in my 20s and 30s. Worst advice kids get. When I say kids, I mean students. Worst advice kids get, and I won't play this, is we have two types of speakers at NYU. And we have two, three speakers every week. People who are very impressive and have accomplished a lot and have a lot of insight, and billionaires. We've decided if you're a billionaire, you must know something and you should come speak to young people at NYU. And billionaires always have the same advice for people. They always end with the same thing. And it's the worst advice I think you can give a young professional. Follow your passion. Follow your passion. And it's absolutely terrible advice. And typically, the guy on stage, the billionaire on stage, telling you to follow your passion made his billions in iron ore smelting. If someone tells you to follow their passion or follow your passion, it means they are already rich. Your job isn't to find your passion as a young person. Your job is to find something you're good at. And then log the requisite 10,000 plus hours, the grit, the perseverance, the headache, the frustration that's involved in what is called work, such that you can become great at it. And then once you're great at something, the accoutrements of being great at it, economic security, the respect of your colleagues, pride, right, camaraderie, accomplishment, those things will make you passionate about whatever it is. Tax law, nobody grows up dreaming of being a tax lawyer. Nobody. What do you want to be? I want to be a doctor. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a tax lawyer. Said no kid ever. But the best tax lawyers in America fly private and get to marry someone much more interesting than them. 
And those are wonderful things. And if you get to do those things because you are great at tax law and people come listen to you speak and people will pay you a lot of money to give them advice on tax law, you will become passionate about it. People become passionate about what they're good at and differentiates them from the rest of the gene pool. So your job isn't to find your passion and it's also dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Because work is hard. And if you're seeking justice, you're not gonna find it in the corporate world. You will be fired, you will be mistreated. You will find periods of injustice. And you'll think, this is getting really hard. It must not be my passion. No, it's work. <laughs> and a lot of young people, especially the most recent generation, mistake hard work for indicating it's not their passion and they should quit. And that's not true. It's like, are you good at this and are you getting better? That's the only question you should be asking. What's the most important decision you'll make in your life? I query my kids on this and they say, well, it's the industry you'll go into or the city you'll live in. No, it's not. The most important decision as it relates to your happiness over the course of your life is who you'll partner with, specifically who your spouse will be, or more specifically, who you decide to have kids with. It's also economically very important. People in single, single households aggregate wealth at half the pace as people who are married. Teams, teams work economically. So if you're in a household with a married household, over the course of their lifetime, will save almost four times as much as someone who's single. Now, it, this is key, the definition of family. Family doesn't necessarily establish always what we would think of as the nuclear family. It can be an aunt and a niece deciding to partner up to take care of kids together. It can be two brothers deciding to live together and commit to each other on a very deep level to be successful personally and professionally. Family, simply put, is people you otherwise wouldn't put up with but you, you commit to. And that commitment has tremendous economic rewards because you can divide and conquer the tough things in life. The worst thing that can happen to someone in their 20s and 30s, people say, well, it's sickness. Sickness is of the aged. It's tightly correlated to age. Most people in their 20s and 30s do not get sick. The thing that takes 20 and 30-something-year-olds off track, quite frankly, is divorce. It's economically ruinous. It almost comes at the wrong time. And it always sets people back emotionally, financially, and professionally five to 10 years. Find someone who's really wealthy. If they're very wealthy, they have a lot of marriages. But if they're wealthy, it usually means they've had one marriage. And that's, that's actually, that's largely untrue. Most very wealthy people have a lower divorce rate. Marriage is a best practice, or what I would say is monogamy is a best practice for wealth creation and happiness. I have personal experience with this. My parents were living the American dream. Both immigrants pulled out of school at the age of 13, immigrated to the US on a steamship, living the American dream. My dad was a salesman. My mother was a secretary. But in 60s California, you could string together a wonderful life. We lived in a home where if you stood on your toes in the living room, you could see the ocean. We had an ocean view home. But my dad decided to start his third marriage while he was still in his second marriage. And within six months, we were all living in apartments. And and homes just full, full of rage. It literally took everyone off track for a good 10 years. So I don't think divorce is a laughing matter, but if you put it on your Facebook page, it's public consumption. This is Jeff Bezos, how he feels about divorce. This is how, how he described divorce when he announced he was uh, splitting with his wife. We also see wonderful futures ahead as parents, friends, partners, and ventures and projects, and as individuals pursuing ventures and adventures together. So as someone who's been divorced, I just want to confirm that perfectly describes divorce. Uh, that was a joke. <laughs> that was NYU professor and best-selling author Scott Galloway speaking about his book, The Algebra of Happiness. 
We're going to hear a quick word now from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of Scott's keynote address. This episode of Winning on Main Street is brought to you by Thrive, the end-to-end client experience platform that includes everything small business owners need to meet their customers' expectations. Thrive's award-winning and fully mobile interface delivers technology previously reserved for big business to the fingertips of small business owners nationwide. Thrive's built specifically for small business, but there's nothing small about what it can do. Thrive handles your entire customer experience, helping business owners reach more customers, stay organized, get paid faster, and generate online reviews, all from a single device or screen. To learn more about Thrive, visit winningonmainstreet.com and click on Get a Demo. When it comes to software to run your business, there's no comparison. Check out Thrive today. So the key then becomes, well, what makes a successful partnership? What are the ingredients of a successful partnership? And most research shows it comes down to three things. The first is sex and affection. These things identify the relationship as singular, and in nonverbal ways, instinctual ways, say, I choose you, and it's very important. The second is values. What's your approach to religion? How are you going to raise your kids? Where are you going to raise your kids? What is your approach to where you're going to be relative to your family? Right? Does mom and dad come over every weekend? What, 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 are, what are your approach to the key things in life, and do you share those values with your partner? However, these aren't the most important values in terms of success of a partnership. The most successful thing are the most successful forward-looking indicator in a relationship, and quite frankly, the leading cause of divorce, it's money, specifically your approach to money. Who's responsible for making it? What economic weight class do you expect to be in, and how are you going to get there? What is your approach to spending money? It's the number one cause of divorce. Most people guess in surveys that it's infidelity. It's not. It's a disagreement or misalignment or stress around money or not shared values around who's responsible for creating economic security and what is your approach to maintaining it. Other key forward-looking indicator of success is your zip code and your credentials. We like to think we live in a meritocracy. We don't. We live in a caste system. And our caste system is largely indicated by the zip code you're in and the degree you have. Show me a woman with a double E degree from Dartmouth living in New York. I'll show you someone who's making $150,000 by the time she's 30. Show me a high school graduate living in Little Rock, Alabama, and I'll show you someone who's lucky if they make $50,000 by the time they're 30. Unfortunately, in the US, the top 50 colleges now have more people from the top 1% of income earning households than the bottom 60%. So slowly but surely, and I'm not proud of this because I'm part of the problem, we have decided that the people who get the spoils in our society are the people who get to go to the best schools. The highest paid companies in the world all have one thing in common. They all recruit at the same schools. And the same schools, those schools all have one thing in common, and that is the majority of the kids at these schools come from wealthy families. So unfortunately, because of education in the US, we've decided that the innovators in our society get to be the kids of rich people. Now, that's still not entirely true. It's still, there's still those opportunities, but it's becoming more and more true in the US, which is a shame. By the way, two-thirds of all economic growth is going to be in 20 super cities around the nation. One of the key pieces of advice I give to young people, get to a city. Get to a city when you're young. When you're in Dallas, you're playing with the best. You know when you're playing tennis and you're on the court with someone better than you, your game comes up? When you're in a city, you're playing tennis with the best people in the world. Best services, best professionals, there's more expectation, more expectation on you. People work harder, it's more expensive, you have to be more su successful. 
But being in a big city is key to success, and it's also easier. Have you ever noticed when you ski on good snow or you surf where the waves are good, you think, well, I'm pretty good at this. It's not you, it's the snow and the waves that day. <laughs> the same is true of economic success. You'd much rather be average in Dallas than good in a small town in Texas. Cities are key. That's where the snow is best and the waves are best. Certification is hugely important. And I'm not necessarily saying college. College isn't for everybody. A degree in cosmetology, a class two driver's license, anything that separates you from the crowd digitally and says, I'm different, I have additional skills. I always like to, just as a, a nod, uh, uh, talk about the reason I'm here. I'm here because of the generosity and vision of the University of California and California taxpayers. Son of a single mother who lived and died a secretary. Literally here because the University of California said, we're going to give you a great education and we're going to charge you $7,000 total tuition, undergrad and graduate school. And that's why I'm here, uh, because of, of state-sponsored education. Money and happiness. People say money can't buy you happiness. That's not true. All the research shows it can. <laughs> there is a direct correlation between money and happiness. That's the bad news. Middle class people are, are happier than the poor. The affluent are happier than middle class. The good news is, is it tops out. And that is once you get to a point where you can afford your mortgage, afford health care, absorb an economic shock, take nice vacations, pay for your kids' education, happiness flatlines. Now there's a myth that billionaires are unhappy. They're actually no less happier than millionaires, but they're no happier either. Once you get to a certain point of economic security, happiness flatlines between more money and happiness. So what I tell people is more money is awesome, but think of it as ink in your pen. It can write different chapters that you might not otherwise be able to write. It can make certain chapters burn brighter, but it's not your ink. You have a responsibility in a capitalist society to bust a move to economic security. There's just no doubt about it. We live in a Hunger Games economy. You're going to have a nicer life if you have a certain income level. But at a certain income level, happiness flatlines, and you need to start focusing on other things that you find joy in. Now, this is supposedly around 75 to 125 grand in most parts in America where I live. In New York, I think it's about 750 grand a year. <laughs> compound interest. You know, supposedly Einstein said the most powerful force in the universe is compound interest. He didn't say it, but he's attributed with it. But the notion that if at the age of 22 you can figure out a way to put 100 bucks a month away, when you're 65, you wake up and you have $1.2 million. And if you had this magic box, how much money would you put in it? And I tell all my kids, you have the magic box. It's called youth. And most of us make the mistake when we're young of thinking, well, we were just so awesome. At some point, it's going to start raining money. Well, just in case it doesn't, figure out a way to put that 100 bucks, 200 bucks, if you're really blessed, 500 bucks or 1,000 bucks a month away. And if you're young, it's a magic box. Because time, our species is terrible at measuring time. And anyone here over the age of 40 can tell young people with confidence, you have no idea how fast it's going to go. So start finding that box and putting that money away. Now, the same is also true with relationships. And that is small investments in relationships at a young age. And I'm not talking about a ton of time. Text messages, showing up for events, going to weddings, going to funerals, expressing affection, expressing how impressed you are with people. Right? Checking in, telling them when they're having a hard time that you're there, you're there for them. Right? These small investments over the course of a relationship are like savings. And that is you wake up in your 40s and 50s, and those relationships you've made those investments in, you find they're very deep and they're very meaningful because of these small relationships you've made. So compound interest is not only a phenomenon when it relates to savings and economics, it's also true when it comes to relationships. And I tell kids they should start making those small investments. My biggest mistake was being selfish, 
quite frankly, an asshole up until my 40s, mostly, mostly just the first now. But I didn't make a big investments in relationships. I was mostly just focused on wealth and generally being awesome. And I woke up at the age of 40 with no family and not a lot of deep, meaningful relationships. And that is, as we'll talk about, really the key to happiness. So I tell kids, just as you start saving, start being disciplined about making those small investments in relationships, checking in with your parents, trying to establish meaningful relationships with your siblings, despite how unfair they are and unreasonable they are. And you wake up and you find you have $1.1 million in relationships uh, faster than you'd think. Most people identify the single relationship in their life as the relationship they have with their mother. And this is because of those small uh, millions of investments she likely made in you as a child, right? Those little things. People identify this typically as the singular relationship in their life. This is a feel-good presentation. Everyone mostly nods. Where I get pushback is on this section. And uh, I think embracing your gender is hugely rewarding. Now, I think it's important we're having a conversation around the spectrum of gender and that everyone deserves dignity and respect regardless of where they are in that spectrum. But I think we have mistakenly conflated masculinity with toxicity. And that is, I tell young men to embrace your manhood is incredibly rewarding. The question is, what does it mean to be a man? When I was in my 20s, I thought manhood meant being ripped. I didn't work out to be healthy. I worked out to be huge. My goal was to sleep, as, sleep with as many strange women as possible and to be as awesome a partier as possible, to go out and drink more than anybody else and still get up early the next day because I was an awesome partier. And generally, I went into investment banking because I thought it was awesome. I didn't know what it was. I wasn't very good at it. But I heard it was awesome. So that was my definition of manhood. This was my attempt to be a man. And what you find as you get older, being a man involves different things, right? Being a good neighbor makes me feel masculine, makes me feel important. Taking the interest in the well-being of a kid that isn't mine makes me feel strong like bull. Voting. I try to take time off, and I know I'm doing a lot of virtue signaling right now. And I canvass for candidates, because it makes me feel American, and it makes me feel macho. It makes me feel very manly. So I think the key is to embrace your gender. And I look at this through the lens of a white heterosexual male, but just to identify what does it mean to be a man, not a boy, and try and get to that manhood as quickly as possible. What is rich? Rich is passive income that's greater than your burn. So a story of two families. One is my father and his wife. Number four, but we think this one's going to stick. <laughs> Between his pension from the Royal Navy, their Social Security, they make about, I think, about $52,000 a year and they spend about 48. They're rich. They're saving money at the age of 89. And it brings my dad just incredible joy. I have another very close friend who runs uh, fixed income for a premier investment bank. He oversees 1,100 people. And depending on the market, he makes between three and $10 million a year. And between uh, alimony of his first wife, his first family, child support, private school for six kids in Manhattan, a second home in the Hamptons, and a lifestyle fitting of the master of the universe that he believes he is, he spends all of it. And I can tell you firsthand, there are several nights a month he spends staring at the ceiling, wondering what happens when the music stops. He is poor. So young people focus on their top line income. Adults focus on their burn. Managing your burn is the key to being wealthy. Things versus experiences. The research here is very simple. Uh, people overestimate the amount of joy they'll get from things, and they underestimate the amount of joy they get from experiences. So the lesson here is very straightforward. Drive a Hyundai and take your wife to Africa. 
a good death and ROI. People talk about the joy of raising kids. What they don't talk about is the joy or the dignity you will get if you help someone with a decent departure. And we don't talk about it because it's very uncomfortable. But looking back and having played an active role in making someone's death more comfortable, someone you care about, is typically something people cite at the end of their life as being something they're very proud of. Happiness equals family. Almost all the research comes back that the happiest people are part of a unit. Again, how you define family is kind of up to you, but typically those people are happier. Success is a function of resilience over failure. You will get fired. People you love will die. You will have injustice everywhere in the corporate world. Your ability to dust up or dust off your pants after you've been beamed in the face, get up and try again, is the key to success. Resilience over failure really is the algorithm for the success. And I love this graph. People think success looks like this. It doesn't, it looks like that. I've had businesses go bankrupt, lost, you know, lost people I loved, uh, was divorced by the time I was 35. Uh, I've had some real setbacks. And if I look at my success, it's a function of the fact that I was always willing to mourn and then move on and get back up. And if you talk to a lot of people, and we all know these people, it happens to a lot of guys in their 40s and 50s who've had a lot of success, and they, they hit their first kind of rough patch in terms of a relationship, a divorce, or economic failure, a business that fails, and they become stuck. They can't get past it. Six months, 12 months, 24 months, they just haven't moved on. They're not back on the playing field. They're constantly revisiting their failure, and they become stuck. This is one of the few absolutes I hold to in my life. Nothing is ever as good or as bad as it seems. Your life is not about what happens to you. It's about how you react to what happens to you. And in the moment, everything, everything is exponentially exaggerated from a perception standpoint. When you think you're killing it, and you think you're doing well, and you're invincible, that's the time to bring your horns in and have some humility and realize that it's not entirely your fault. Your success, a lot of it is a function of just how fortunate you are. And then when you screw up and you think, I can't do anything right, I'm a real idiot, I'm a failure, you also have to recognize that it's not entirely your fault. And you just need to move on and get to the next, get to the next thing. What are some of the meteors that could take us off track? What are some of the things that can take people who are normally pretty happy in their 30s and 40s off track? Howling in the money storm. And that is constantly thinking about how to keep up with people. You will always have people more successful than you on every dimension. And we, as a competitive species, which is key to evolutionary progress, anchor off the most successful person we know. We spend a lot more time going, why am I not one of the one with the big house? Right? He or she is not as smart as me, and they're making more money than me at work, and I just can't handle that. that. That upsets me. That angers me. That is part of being a competitive species. But it's also very damaging to our self-esteem, and it's difficult on our happiness. And howling in the money storm, and a lot of people, especially I find in New York, Always imagine a number getting bigger. Everybody kind of knows, loosely speaking, what their net worth is. And the thing that's terrible about numbers is we can imagine them doubling and tripling. And when they don't, we get unhappy or we feel ashamed, especially when we're constantly, constantly barraged with images of other successful people on Instagram and in social media. Not recognizing they have the perspective they're like, no, their life's difficult too. They just have a lot more filters on their life than I do at this present moment. This is Han Solo telling Luke Skywalker he can imagine a lot of money. I won't play this. Another thing that takes people or makes them not as happy as they could be is the delta between your feelings and what you express to people. And that is probably the greatest untapped resource in the world is your unexpressed emotions. 
People think they're a loving person if they think loving thoughts about people. I love other people in my life. I genuinely love them. It makes me a loving person. No, it doesn't. You have to have the confidence and the discipline to express that love to other people. And a lot of people our age, especially men, don't do that. They don't express admiration. Men specifically think of it as a currency for some reason, and that if we express admiration to other men or affection, that it somehow makes us weaker. And so men especially don't do this. And people at the end of their lives, one of the things they regret the most is not telling people. They think, these people meant so much to me. You know, I was so impressed with them. And I never really told them that. And it's a, it's a huge lost opportunity that doesn't cost anything. So I call it minding the gap. Forgiveness. Long-term relationships, successful relationships, key to happiness, and also the key to long-term relationships is bringing a certain level of forgiveness. One thing that's almost always consistent in any relationship is one or both of you will screw up. And if you don't bring a level of forgiveness, if you're constantly keeping score, it's gonna end up in um, a lot of stress because you will inflate your own contributions to the relationship and you will naturally minimize theirs. And if you keep score, you're always gonna be angry and you're always gonna feel deficient in the relationship. So a certain level of forgiveness is key. Not only is it the key or a key to happiness um, in relationships, it's a key uh, in terms of your own self-satisfaction. And that is the one piece of advice when they survey seniors before they die and say, what would you change about your life? The number one piece of advice they would give to the younger selves isn't that I wish I'd made more money or that I'd stayed married, right? Or that I'd taken more risk. The one piece of advice they would give their younger selves is they wish they hadn't been so hard on themselves. They wish they'd been more forgiving of themselves. So not only is forgiveness important to bring to relationships, it's important to bring to your own life to realize that you will mess up and that's okay, to be less hard on yourself. Metrics are dangerous. This is the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Almost all of us know approximately where it is. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, in my view, is one of the most harmful metrics in the world because it masks uh, much more important things. This essentially is an economic indicator of the top decile of Americans. The top 10% of income earners own 80% of the stocks. So this is a metric on how the wealthy are doing. Spoiler alert, in the US, the wealthy are killing it. They're doing great. This is a metric that we don't talk about. This is life expectancy in the United States. For the first time in our history, life expectancy has gone down three years in a row. We're literally dying earlier in the United States. What could be a more relevant metric? Well, what does this all mean if we're all dying sooner every year? And it's largely because of opioid deaths. More people will die from opioid overdoses this year than died in the entire Vietnam conflict. Think about that. Think about all the, think of all the strain, all the upset, all the disappointment from death and disability from the Vietnam War. That's happening every year because of opio opioids. I also believe the thing that most likely is the biggest risk to a healthy family head by, led by people in their 30s and 40s is what I believe is an emerging mental health crisis among teenagers. And part of it's our fault. We kind of engage in, especially people who are successful in what I call concierge or bulldozer parenting, and that is we clear out all the obstacles for them. We have so many sanitary wipes on our kids' lives that they don't develop their own immunities. I've seen this in the 17 years I've been teaching. I am profane, I'm inappropriate, I say sexist, you know, inappropriate things in class. And 17 years ago, people would push back on it or they'd laugh. Now people stand up, yell me down, and walk out and start a petition. No joke. And they are physically triggered. They're not 
I don't even think they're trying to be indignant. We have a victim in a shaming complex in the United States where you get virtue points by being offended. The first thing that happens when you're offended is you're right. You may even be a hero. No one says, well, think about, think about take gestures with the intent that they were given. Or how would a reasonable person respond to that gesture? Instead, it's, well, am I offended? That's the measurement now across America. Does it offend me? And we're so protective of our kids. We put so much bubble wrap around their lives. They develop this princess and the pea syndrome. And teen suicide is skyrocketing. The other second component of this very, very upsetting cocktail is social media, where teenage girls no longer see that they were, weren't invited to a party. That's been happening for generations. But they see the party play out in real time on their Instagram feed in their room alone. Boys bully physically and verbally. Girls bully relationally. And we have put nuclear weapons in the hands of teenage girls in the form of social media platforms. So a combination of concierge and bulldozer parenting and social media has led to a 58% increase in teen suicide and an 80% increase in emergency room admittances for self-harm among teenage girls. And anyone in this room who has kids knows you're only as happy as your least happy kid. Everything can be going great. Something comes off the rails with one of your kids, that's it. I mean, you are very unhappy. So I think that's arguably the biggest risk to people who are happy and have achieved a lot is something comes off the rails with their kids and we have an emerging mental health crisis among young people. Some best practices. What's the leading cause of unhappiness? You also want to screen out the things that are likely to take you off track. Largest study of its kind, the Harvard Grant Study, tracked 400 people over the course of their life and found that the cohort that was least happy had this in common. Does anyone know what this is? This shocked me. Anyone know what the, the, the indicator of unhappiness among the least happy group among 400 men studied over the course of their lifetime? What, what, what did they all have in common? Or what was common in their life? Yes, sir. Uh, health is a big indicator. That wasn't the number one thing. Although this led to chronic disease. Not married. Loneliness is, the, there's a ton of, uh, there's a, now a ton of um, research on loneliness saying if you live alone, that's the equivalent of, of smoking 17 cigarettes a day. Think about that. So a lot of the research says loneliness, but the largest study doesn't say that. The largest study says that the number one worst practice in happiness, alcohol is responsible for more divorce, more health, um, uh, poor health, and careers coming off the tracks. And this is what I would call do as I say, not as I do. I love to drink. I'm a better version of me, uh, a little bit drunk. I'm, I'm happy, I'm affectionate, I'm charming, I'm interested in you when I'm drunk. <laughs> but there's just no getting around it. Alcohol, in most studies, is present among people who are struggling. What is the one thing? All right, alcohol across the bottom decile of happiness. What is the one thing across the top decile? And all the studies come back kind of the same. And it's corny, but it's true, and most of us don't really practice it. The key to happiness is simply put the number and the depth of meaningful relationships you have across work, family, and friends. At work, do you feel respected and admired, and do you admire and respect other people? Among your friends, do you get a sense of joy and camaraderie? And do you know, just as importantly, that they feel a sense of joy and camaraderie from you? And amongst your family, do you feel an intense level of support and love? And again, just as important, do you know they know that you intensely love and support them? And the largest study of its kind that went 80 years, the Harvard Grant study, survived three principal scientists, because they kept dying, because the thing went 80 years. It's a 400-page write-up, and it has the best opening line of any academic study 
which are not known for being compelling reads. And the first line of the largest study on happiness is simply, happiness is love, full stop. My name is Scott Galloway. I teach at NYU, and I appreciate your time. That was Scott Galloway speaking at the Thrive Connect 19 user conference in Dallas recently. If you're interested in attending future Thrive conferences, go to thrive.com connect and click on the keep me informed button and provide your contact details. We hope you enjoyed today's special edition of Winning on Main Street featuring best-selling author and NYU Stern School of Business marketing professor, Scott Galloway. Our American economy is built upon great entrepreneurs like Scott. We appreciate their time sharing part of their story with us here on Winning on Main Street. Tune in next episode for more insights with another great entrepreneur. For now, this is your host, Gordon Henry, signing off. Thank you.